All right. Well, if you open your Bibles to Exodus 24, we're going to be in there, and then we'll probably we will be in Exodus 32 most of the time. Um, real quick on the um, if you're not on the RoadLife.org, it's just a good place for us to uh, stay connected and for you to get information. And I sent an email out last night, and it spoke about our building search a little bit and kind of what's been going on. There's been a lot of questions, and uh, we had a meeting uh, I don't know a month ago to kind of put out the vision for what we're talking about, and so um, God has closed the door on the building we initially were looking at, and as is his way, he opens up other ones that you don't even think about, and so uh, that's kind of what happened, so this week I'm going to send a letter out to kind of give some information about that in particular, and uh, talk about um, really asking the church to kind of search their hearts about their their belief in this mission that we've been called to specifically in this place, and the vision for that. Um, and asking to, uh, to partner with us. It's a much uh, wiser use of our money. It's very expensive to be at the school. You'd be surprised how much it is. And so that's really a large part of what's driving this is to be good stewards of what God has given us, um, both with the mission and just uh, his money that he's given us. So uh, I will send that out this week, and you'll feel free to ask questions about that uh, after you get that. And hopefully maybe next week we'll even uh, have a very specific information for you. So not to whet your appetite, but I'm just trying to get people aware of what's going on. So we're in Exodus uh, 24. We're actually in 32. We're going to start in 24. And uh, from Exodus 19 through 24, we kind of see a replay of creation. Um, basically, we 19 and 20 is really the, the Ten Commandments. And you have this picture of God taking his people, that is Israel, out of uh, Egypt, redeeming them, uh, destroying the slave master, if you will, uh, representative of our own sin and how God removes us and Jesus out of our bondage. And now we're at this point where, through 19 and really to 24, where God proposes, uh, somewhat in a very relational terms, like a bride or groom to his bride, proposes, and Israel says, I do, after he kind of lays out, this is what I've done for you and why I'm such an awesome groom. And now as you go into the Ten Commandments, you begin to see the marriage covenant that's being put together and the rules that are going to govern their relationship. And though the bride is um, a whiner and a complainer and has a wandering eye, uh, God still pursues her and knowing that she will reject him ultimately at some point and many times, uh, they exchange their I do's, if you will. Now, uh, the Ten Commandments, as we spoke about the last couple of weeks, are fleshed out in Exodus 21 to 24 and kind of given real practical applications as here's the scenarios. But at the very end of, well, really, Exodus 24, Moses has been the only one really receiving all this information, and he goes up and down the mountain several times, and this time, God sends him back down to kind of bring them up to have what amounts to a wedding reception for what has just occurred. And so we're in Exodus 24, and that's where we're going to start, and I'll read uh, most of it to kind of give you a picture of what happens in Exodus 32, because the wedding reception in 24 is replayed again as more of a frat party sex orgy in 32, and you begin to see these very uh, diverse uh, things that happen when... We make gods uh, that aren't really gods. So Exodus 24, verse 1 says this, after he's gotten all the commandments and the specifics. says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. 
Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So Moses came and told the people all of the words and all of the rules that he received in Exodus 20 all the way up to this chapter. And all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will, oh, I'm sorry, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all of the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant that he had written and read it in the hearing of the people. So they heard it twice. And again they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and then threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all those words. So it's like putting the ring on the finger. We are one. We are married. And then they have somewhat of a celebration. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank as they worshipped there in his presence. And in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instructions. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, who we know in the future takes over for Moses' leadership, but this is the first time he's mentioned. He's like an executive assistant to Moses. And he went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. So I'm leaving these two guys in charge. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And he begins to have this lengthy dialogue with um, God. And so fast forward, because the dialogue takes you from basically Exodus 25 to Exodus 30. And that's all the stuff that God tells Moses. And what he basically tells him is that he's going to give him this tabernacle plans and these blueprints and all these things. And so that all takes place. And so we turn over to Exodus 32. And the only reason we're going to fast forward is because we actually replay it again as Moses recounts what's been told and they actually build what was instructed. So we'll deal with it one time and we'll talk about the tabernacle, but we're going to, in the meantime, deal with what was going on as this was all happening. And that's what we get in Exodus 32. So in Exodus 32, it says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed, so he goes up on the mountain, he's been there for some time, He delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses is up on this mountain. We find out at the the end of 24 and other places that he's up there for 40 days. They are never told, nor is Moses told how long it's going to take. But we know that it's taken up to this point 40 days. And he has received, as I said, the blueprints for what will be the tabernacle of God, the house of God. 
He has been told about the priesthood, the people who will kind of run the house. And he's been told about the sacrifices, what they'll do in the house. He's been told about the furniture that they're going to make for the house. And in particular, the Ark of the Covenant, which is basically a a golden box that is very specifically built and has on top of it a place that they will have poor blood for sacrifices and the atonement will be made for sins by the priests. If you've seen Indiana Jones, it looks something like that. And that will be where God's presence will dwell as they're with the people. So all of this stuff he's giving him uh, somewhat of a, a theology lesson in this is what it's going to be like to relate with God. Meanwhile, back at camp, the people are getting very impatient over their 40 days. And though that verse 3 and 7 in chapter 24, they had affirmed twice that they would obey, that they would follow his rules, they are without question, going to fail. So 40 days of faith, and suddenly they're starting to panic because they don't see Moses. At the end of chapter 20, when he first was given the Ten Commandments, Moses is standing between the people and God, and God is thundering and speaking, and Moses is kind of dialoguing back with this thunder, and the people freak out. They kind of get scared. And so they say, Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. You go up and speak for us. And so that's basically what happens. And it's been like that since the beginning of the Exodus, where Moses has been what amounts to the contact point for them and God. And now that their contact point is gone, they have lost contact with their God. And they're, in some ways, understandably, starting to get scared and starting to fear. And I wonder sometimes, uh, some of the elders... We're talking about this passage because I like to just ask them what they think about this. And one of the things that was um, shared and I began to really dwell on is that how often this might happen in our churches today. In churches today, it seems like a lot of the faithfulness of the people gets polarized around one guy, namely the pastor. And it's a little concerning, or a lot concerning, how maybe some churches, or maybe just people, because I don't know if it's necessarily the church's fault, how they deify the pastors to such an extent that their faith becomes dependent on that pastor. Now, instead of, think about it, instead of referencing scripture, they'll reference what their pastor said. Instead of maybe reading the Bible, they'll read the books that their pastor has written to memorize the books. And passages in them. Instead of sharing about their faith and what God has done with them and how He shaped them and challenged them and the relationship, how it's moved them, they'll send an email to them, say, check out this podcast from this pastor. In essence, I think what happens is the faith becomes about a man, it becomes about maybe a church, it becomes about a program. And it's only through that church or that pastor or that program that I can actually learn and grow. You probably have seen that. Maybe you haven't. I've been to churches where there's a pastor, you know, the the guy, and they publicize ahead of time who's going to preach when. And if that guy's not preaching, the church is half empty. It becomes about that guy and learning from that guy. Now, churches, unfortunately, and I talk about church the organization not church the body of christ but these organizations don't help very often when they begin to you see this 
You know, pastorsoandso.com is the address for their church. Or their audio podcast, or pastor blah, 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 audio. And it's a lot of people. It's not just one church. It's like, well, what are we really about here? Or about the name. What name is that exactly? Is it still Jesus? When Moses steps away, when their, quote, pastor steps away, they freak out. They freak out. And despite what they've said, despite what they've confessed, their faith, without question, is not connected actually with what Yahweh's done, but what Moses has done this entire time. So much so, they say, that guy who delivered us from Egypt. Moses didn't deliver anything. Moses is not the hero of this story. God is. Moses was a tool. And yes, he does some amazing things, but without question, he's just a guy. And it concerns me. I've got friends who are pastors, and people just think that they're perfect. They put so much faith in these guys. And they almost, they deify them to the point where they want them to like behave like inhumanly, like not to have weaknesses and brokenness and those types of things. And what I've seen this happen is it's so dangerous to put your faith in a man or a church. That's what the core of your faith is. Because when it is, when that man screws up, when that man fails, when that church fails, suddenly your faith falls apart. And there's a lot of people in this church and others that have experienced a tremendous amount of brokenness and pain from pastors and church leaders and churches. And I wonder, although my guess is they were did some sinful things, my wonder is if, did you make a mistake in putting that much faith in them as opposed to a faith and connection with God for your faith? Because it's Dangerous and very tempting to come to a church and just let the pastor be the guy. Let the church be your identity and not ever actually connect that with God. And so what happens, as we see here, when that guy fails or that guy disappears, they either abandon their faith completely or they turn and they replace it with something that they can see a God they can measure, a God they can control, a God that in some sense is fail-safe. And we all have our own gods that that happens with. In Exodus 32, it continues in verse 2 to see what happens when Moses disappears. It says this, So Aaron said to them, Aaron's idea, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off, all, took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Sounds a lot like Exodus 24. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, to drink, and they rose up to play. So, Israel wants a God that they can feel, that they can touch, they can see, and they've ignored the fact that God deliberately, Yahweh deliberately said, 
that's not the kind of God I want or I'm going to be. He deliberately said he would not be that kind of God and insisted on a faith that was to be believed in even if you could not see it. I don't know if you know anything about Thomas. I really like Thomas. He's one of the 12 disciples. And he was a very uh, honest guy. And honest, I mean, he, you see his honesty. He's very human. A lot like Peter. People mock Thomas a little. Doubting Thomas. Like, man, I'd kill to be doubting Thomas. Got to touch and be with Jesus. But when Jesus died, and he rose from the dead... And he was walking around and revealing himself to different people. And reports started coming in. Thomas was the one guy that said, no way. I ain't believing it until I see it. Until I can put my finger in the hole of his hand and stick my hand on his side where that Roman put that spear. No way. And there's a bunch of bunk. And then they were in a house. All the disciples were sitting together talking. And Thomas is probably sitting in the corner going, whatever. And then, Jesus shows up. Doors are locked, so I don't know if it was like, boo, but something, right? He shows up, and they're amazed. And the first thing he says is, hey, Tom, come here. And Thomas is just taken back, and he says, here's my hand. Stick your finger in it. It's my side. I want you to touch it. And Thomas is blown away so much, though, he declares Jesus God on the spot. Jehovah Witnesses say he's swearing at that point. My Lord, my God. But no, he's declaring him Lord and his God and he worships him and he turns to him and he says, Thomas, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who don't see and will not see and yet believe. And that's the kind of faith that God intended for us. But we get our 40 days and we freak out. And we suddenly don't hear God talking to us like some girl with a cell phone that non-stop, right? Well, without question, to appease their desire to see a God go before them, they take the one guy left in charge, they go up to him, and they're probably pretty angry, worried, and so Aaron, who knows what his thought process is at this point, but he appeases them and says, all right, give me your gold. So it takes all their gold, and he must have had like an idol 101, like, shop class somewhere because he creates a pretty darn good idol it seems and he's like graving it making it all pretty and it's so impressive to them that their first reaction is these are gods wow and Aaron's like dang that worked pretty good so let's build an altar so he throws down an altar in front of this representation of God which probably has a tremendous amount of influence from their Egyptian upbringing. They had all kinds of gods that looked like this. But they start making sacrifices to this god. And the funny thing is, or maybe the sad thing is, when he says, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt, that's the exact same thing that God said right before he gave the Ten Commandments. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And so this is not just rebellion. This is full-out rejection. And Aaron and her guys were left in charge... Guys who were supposed to be the judges of right and wrong. Guys who were supposed to, in the very beginning, shepherd them away from this kind of stuff. When they said, let's make a God. He's like, are you joking me? Did you hear God's word? Didn't you read God's word? That's their job. And instead, they give in to the applause. They give in to the desires of the people. And they go into a full-blown cult. 
I mean, they got everything. They got the false god. They got the false priests and Aaron. They got the false sacrifices. They got the false worship, which ultimately begins with eating and playing, exactly like the real worship in Exodus 24, but then degenerates into a full-on sexual orgy. That's what that word means. Play. It wasn't like, you know, they're dancing and stuff, but they're doing a heck of a lot more than dancing. All thinking that they're worshiping God. All with, quote, good intentions. But they've denied God's Word. And that's where pretty much bad theology starts. Where you begin to deny God's Word and you start going with a man-centered understanding of God. And once your theology of God begins with man, everything else will end up in man-made religion, in man-made sacrifice, in man-centered worship, and you will begin to dictate according to your emotion and your experience and your intellect, judging what God is like. Versus allowing God's Word, when your emotion goes, I don't like that, allowing His Word to dictate that emotion is wrong. You don't have to like it, but it's the truth. We don't like to be judged. We don't like to submit our intellect and even our emotion. But that's what we're supposed to do with God's Word. God's Word is primary. God declares who He is. We don't redefine Him according to what our desire is. And it proves that you can have everything there is to look religious. You can have the church, the gathering of people. You can have the God that you've created. You can have your worship and your singing. You can have everything and not have God. That's scary. As a pastor, it scares a snot out of me. That means, in 2 Corinthians 11, when it says there's another Jesus and another gospel, another spirit, better make dang sure we got the right one. Because you can have it all, and you can have huge churches, and everyone worshiping, and, oh my gosh, and not be biblical. Should be sobering. Should be sobering about our church and should be sobering about our individual faith. And so God sees this, and in verse 7, he gets ticked. And I love a God who is ultimately loving and gracious and kind and one that's angry. I love a God that's angry. The Lord said to Moses in verse 7 Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I don't know if he said it that way, but it would be kind of funny if he did, you know, because we always make the people that we make fun of like funny voices. I think it would be great. So, and the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God distanced himself, I like this, from his people. It's, I've done this to my bride before. So when your kids mess up, you're like, I can't believe what your kids are doing. Right? You're kind of like, those are my kids. You see that? That's you and them. And so he says to Moses, and I don't think he's joking necessarily like that, but he says, your people, Moses, do you let out of here? He is, wants to be away. He is upset. And I think that we have to be careful, or at least it's important to understand, 
God's anger here. He's not just arbitrarily angry just because they did something wrong, but without question, first and foremost, he's upset because they've broken his law that they agreed to twice, had a big celebration about, and it's been 40 days. It's not like 40 years. It's been 40 days, and they already have broken them. And they have not only made a false god, but they went full-on rejection rebellion. False worship replaced him. False sacrifice, well, you sacrifice to things that you think will save you. Even false confession, they're telling everyone, telling the world about this wonderful thing. And I began to think, well, you know, if you, want, if you and I want to figure out what our idols are, what our golden bulls are, if you will, we all got them sometimes. Whenever we sin, we have one. Some of us are much stronger than others. But think about this. Consider a few things. Consider the idols in your life, not just, well, like money. There's so many others. The things that you worship, the things that you sacrifice for, the things that you confess about. Think about the things you devote yourselves to, that you find your identity in, that you arrange your life around. Think about the things that give, you give most of your time, most of your energy, mental and physical, most of your resources, most of your money. Think about the thing that you talk about most when given the opportunity. The thing that you're most passionate about. The thing that you can't wait to share with somebody. They're your idols. And the question for all of us is, is that Jesus or is that something else? That's a tough question to be real honest about because it's easy to ignore that. And so I, I know I run the risk of sounding heretical here, but I also like God's humanness here where he's angry, and I realize that it's his personality. We, we make God out to be like this like, kind of like robot, you know, that doesn't have any emotion. It, no, it's just perfect emotion. He made us in his image, so in some sense I am angry, and I'm broken, sinful, angry version, and he's like perfect, holy, angry version. And I like that, though, but anger is always a secondary emotion. And typically with us, it's like we're scared about something, we're insecure about something. Well, I'm pretty sure that God isn't scared or he's insecure. I'm pretty sure he's got things under control. But without question, I think he is grieved. I mean, this is a guy, guy, this is a God who has poured out his heart, if you will, to these people. For 31 chapters, he has saved them, redeemed them, protected them, provided for them, reveal himself, some of the most intimate things about him. It's like a relationship, right? The guy does everything he can. Gives his, throws his heart out there, this beating thing. He's like, here I am, all of me. Not interested. Like that woman that you spent years pouring into, you say, will you marry me? No, sorry, I've never really loved you. (laughs) And then you... So you wait, but you've been loving that? You love him? Whoa, whoa, and anger because of how much you poured out, how much you gave of yourself, and God is understandably angry. And he calls them a stiff-necked people, like an ox that, that, that won't go when you're just yanking, 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 just continues to pursue. And God is so disgusted, he tells Moses something kind of funny. So if you leave me alone, just leave me alone for a second, Moses. Which, he doesn't really have to ask Moses' permission to leave. You know, like, I need to be alone by myself. 
He says, leave me alone so that I can kill them. Leave leave me alone so I can kill them and we can start over with you. We'll make you a holy nation. And Moses, you've got to think about it. It's a little bit of a replay of Genesis chapter 3 because we have this fall of men. They've fallen. They were like, okay, we're in relationship with God. And then there's the fall. And now what? In Genesis chapter 3, God came down and said, Cursing man, cursing woman, cursing creation, cursing Satan. You guys screwed it all up. There's some hope in there because he didn't kill them all. And he could have. But without question, it's different here. He doesn't just go and start cursing and throwing fireballs. He's like, leave me alone so that I can do this and make a nation out of you. Moses has what amounts to this amazing invitation. This amazing opportunity to interact with God. I think in some ways God is telling him, look, if, if you don't do anything, Moses, if you don't say anything, if you don't have a conversation with me, this is what I'm going to do. If you don't intervene. I don't think he's dependent upon Moses to do anything, but without question, he's inviting Moses in a way that we've not seen before. He's inviting interaction. And Moses has the opportunity to exercise the same amount of faithlessness that Israel did and just go with his emotion. Because think about it. Killing Israel has got to be maybe a nice option for him. Because this isn't like a bunch of people that have been really nice to Moses. Even since the beginning, they've been complaining, they've been arguing with him, they've been rebuking him, telling him he's screwing it up, they've threatened to stone him a couple times. So he might be thinking, dang, that's a pretty attractive deal. They deserve it. Man, these guys, spank away. Wipe them out. Wipe the face of the wilderness with them. Now, let's watch. Like Jonah, I'm going to sit up here on a rock and watch you do it. Fire away. You could be thinking that. Tempting. And even more tempting, he's like, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Ooh, that sounds good. Let's not talk about the sons of Israel anymore. Let's talk about the sons of Moses, right? www.moses.com. What do you think about that, Moses? We could start over. Make you a holy nation. Make your sons the faithful ones. And Moses probably thinks about it. We don't see that, but i got to imagine he's got to be thinking that. He could have said, leave me alone. And, okay, go ahead. Because up to this point, it's always been one-way communication. Moses, do this. Yes, sir. Moses, do this. Yes, sir. But God, just do this, Moses. Okay. And now he's like, I'm going to do this, man. And Moses is sitting there, and he decides to intercede, and it's pretty awesome. And verse 11 says this. But Moses implored the Lord with his, his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, quote, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac And Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. See, the last time Moses argued was in Exodus chapter 3. It was very selfish. He said, Moses, go to Egypt. And he's like, whoa, God, I don't think so. I'm not this. 
I'm not this. They're going to kill me. This is not fun. And he argues with them, and God again gets angry, but he also gives in to them a little bit. He says, all right, we'll send Aaron with you, which worked out real well, as you can see. Okay? And the funny thing is that when we implore God and plead with Him the things that He actually clearly does not say He wants, sometimes it seems like He gives it to you. You want that? I told you no. You want, I told you that's not what you want. Okay, there you go. And it blows up in our face. And He's still there to catch us. He's still there to... He doesn't come out and go, ah, I told you so! I mean... He's still there, but without question, when we ask for stuff that he clearly said, no, that's not what I want, we would be careful he doesn't give it to us. But this time, it's different. And he pleads to God to change his mind, not selfishly, but primarily for God's glory. And he says, these are your people, not mine, God. They're your people that you brought with your power out of Egypt. And you brought him out for your name. This is your name and your reputation we're talking about. And these are your promises you made to Abraham, Father. This is about you. This is what's most glorifying to you. And you will be, God, more glorified, I believe. These people deserve to be killed. We don't believe we're Israel. You get that? None of us who name the name of Jesus actually, I think, deserve, when we really think about it, to be killed. We don't deserve the wrath of God. We have a list of, well, I've done this good, I've done this good. Moses doesn't apologize or try to make them out to be better than they are. They deserve it, God, but you will be more glorified if you show mercy in this moment. This is about you, not about what they deserve, not about what I deserve. It is about what is most honoring to you. And I don't know what's more amazing here that he is actually having a conversation with God Almighty, the God who knows the name of every single star, the God who knows the number of the grains of sand on this earth, the God who holds all the planets in the palm of his hand, having a conversation with the Creator or the fact that he listens to him. In Exodus 14, or 32, 14, it says this. This is his response. Simple verse, but an amazing verse. And the Lord relented. He relented from the disaster that He had spoken of Him bringing on His people. He changed His mind. I don't feel theologically, oh, God doesn't change His mind, right? He relented in the sense that He said He was going to do something and He decided to do something else. I know we're going to go, well, he, He's always the same. Yesterday, today, forever. This, for me, brings the personality of God alive. That He responds to a man's appeal. And without question, I don't think that... Uh, oh, I think we're supposed to learn a lot from this. We have the, uh, the theologians that all talk about how our prayer matters. And I think that's important. I think it's important to know that our prayer matters. And that when we pray something, God actually listens to us. Actually responds to us. It's not some vending machine that if you don't put the right amount of money in, it doesn't come out. I don't think that's how God interacts. If it is, it seems pretty foolish for Jesus, who is my perfect example, to be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. If this is possible, God, let this happen a different way. But your will be done. I believe 
prayer matters. I believe we serve a living God and He responds to us. And I think more than anything, we're supposed to look beyond that He changed His mind to the fact that He invites the conversation. And then we can dialogue with our God. And I think without question that God shows here He wants before obedience relationship. He wants relationship with us. I think without question, God isn't learning anything here. He's not like, wow, Moses, that's a really good argument. I never thought of that. As if he's surprised. No, he wants relationship. He's like, Moses, talk to me. Interact with me. Engage with me. Challenge me. Question me. Don't just obey me. And Israel didn't get this. But Moses is getting, starting to get what God actually wants. It's not moralism. It's relationship that in the end transforms your life so you do live differently. But you can't have that without relationship. Now, the sad thing is, is we look at Moses and we're like, yeah! We're not Moses. We're Israel. Let's be honest. We're Israel. I'm Israel. We really, most of the time, don't want relationship with God. We want robot God. We want robot God to do what we want, when we want, to whom we want, whatever we want, when we want. Right? And that's the kind of God that we want. And like Israel, we say many times that we believe. We confess many times. Oh, I will do what you say, God. And then we get our 40 days where God isn't saying nothing. They're like, it's been like 40 days. I'm, um, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. And a relationship amounts or ends up, especially for those people who claim to be Christians, to be nothing more than religious golden bull. That's all it is. Pretty looking bull. Asterisk, 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 asterisk. I mean, let's, let me ask you a real hard question. For you as an individual, don't tell me you're religious. Don't tell me you go to church. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Do you have a relationship with God? Do you have an interaction and an engagement with God? God wants more than your obedience. He doesn't even want a relationship where you occasionally talk to Him. I'll pray to Him over dinner. Say a few things to Him. To obey when you think He sees you or anyone else is watching. Or to make a big deal about Him once a week for 45 minutes, sometimes an hour. But He wants one where you are so fully and comprehensively satisfied in Him all the time and His glory. We think of God's glory. We pray for God's glory. We pursue God's glory. And we depend on Him. And we cry to Him. And we question Him. And we argue with Him. And we listen to Him because we want to know Him. And we wait on Him. And we trust Him even if He is silent and we can't see Him. 
It's a relationship. Like any relationship. And unlike any relationship. He responds to us. And God knew that he could never have the relationship he desired, even with sinful, faithful men like Moses. And so what he did was he eventually came down. And Jesus came off the mountain. And he does more than save us with fire insurance. He does it to secure that relationship with us. And he lives that relationship with God perfectly, fully dependent. Read Luke. He isn't like going through like being Superman. He's going through constantly talking to his father, constantly leaning on God, constantly praying to God. And that life is given to us so that we can actually have Christ living in us. And as we have Christ living in us, we have a relationship with God for those who have accepted that He died for your sins. We have a relationship like He does as a son and a father where we engage and we ask and we talk and we struggle through that tension. Because typically in relationships, we get to two other places. We don't want to fight and say, screw that, or we want to run off. But He sticks us in a place and says, well, leave me alone. Let me invite you in. And He chose... Do you realize when Jesus came down, He decided to have a relationship to the extent where He submitted Himself to be rejected, submitted Himself to experiencing sorrow like we do, to have that relationship. And so now, in Christ, Hebrews 4 says this, we don't go up to the mountain of God all scared that He's going to smite us. We go like His Son did. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let me just say the last thing to the Christian and the non-Christian. To the non-Christian, the irreligious, whatever you call yourself, probably spiritual. Let me just tell you this. Your obedience means squat. You could be the most moral person in the world, follow the Ten Commandments. It doesn't mean anything if you don't have a relationship with God. You'll go to hell. There is no amount of good you can do You won't make it. You won't cut it. One little law. We could talk about how many you've broken. I'm betting you broke one. But the fact is, you were born a sinner, and God has said, you're not going to make it. doesn't matter how moral and obedient you are. I want relationship, because it's the only way you're going to be able to come back with me. And for you Christians, who have for the longest time put your faith in a golden bowl that looks all pretty and religious... God wants more us that we are broken, that we do not give the relationship that we want, that we are a terrible bride. And he says, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I will take you back again. Don't settle for less. You ain't getting nothing from a golden bowl. And you're certainly not going to work your way to God. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory for all that you have done to bring us back to you. Father, you are big and holy, completely other than us, perfect and righteous and glorious, Lord. And we have no right to come into your presence, though we desire to be there. Father, I pray that you will look to Jesus, that you will see his blood covering my sin. You will see his body broken where my should have been. And Father, you will invite me into relationship with you, that I can engage with you and hear you speak with me. 
that I can know and trust, Father, because You love me, that even when You're silent, You are still there orchestrating all things. Help me to trust You, Father. Increase my unbelief. Help my unbelief and make me a believer. I confess that I am a terrible, terrible relational fool. And I thank You that, Father, even when I am faithless, You are faithful. And Your Son's blood which is the only reason we can come into your presence, we pray. Amen.